Welcome to the NutraCast, a production by Nutra Ingredients USA. I'm Danielle Masterson. Thank you for joining me here on the NutraCast, where we talk and share insights from inside the nutrition industry. About 70% of the immune system is housed in the gut, so it's no wonder probiotic bacteria has been shown to have a number of beneficial immune and health effects. With the pandemic playing out before us and immune-supporting ingredients at the forefront, I wanted to speak with a probiotic expert about how beneficial bacteria might play a role in COVID-19. Joining me now is Dr. Chris Dadamo, the Director of the Center for Integrative Medicine at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. Thank you for joining us here on the NutriCast, Dr. Dadamo. Thanks for having me, Danielle. This is a critically important topic. It's an exciting topic, but again, never been more timely, I think, with COVID. Absolutely. So as we get started, can you kind of walk us through the gut-lung access? Sure. You know, we hear quite a bit about the gut-brain axis and other axes, but the gut-lung axis is a relatively new phenomenon in a lot of ways. Well, the phenomenon's been going on forever, but it's a new, newly discovered and understood pathway. And it really operates on this, we call a common mucosal response. And really what it comes down to is that the gut microbiota influence uh, organ systems across the body, not just in the gut, but across the body through this, again, this common mucosal response, which the immune cells are carried throughout the lymphatic system, get into system circulation and can, you know, have an impact on the brain, you know, and including the lung. So you you, you had that great statement about how about 70% of the immunity begins in the gut. I'm happy to talk a little about that as well, because that's kind of the the foundation for how this might have impacts on COVID and other respiratory conditions. There are varying degrees of COVID-19. Some people don't really feel anything, or maybe it's mild. And then there's people who end up in the hospital. And as we know, many people are dying. So my question is, could decreased bacteria diversity and gut dysbiosis be behind the severity of these COVID-19 cases? Well, it likely is in many people. So we know some of the factors, you know, whether it's obesity and metabolic issues, you know, you look at some of these and these are all associated with the decreases in microbial diversity and density or counts. So this may indeed be one of the underlying mechanisms and there is some evidence. So we're in the early innings really at looking at how this has direct implications in COVID, although there is some. And what has been shown is that, you know, some of these opportunistic pathogens have been shown to be higher in the gut bacteria of COVID patients. Uh, these are things like Clostridium uh, species of bacteria, or Candida, which is a, an often problematic yeast, and also in the lungs. Again, this this gut lung axis where there are species from Streptococcus and and Staphylococcus. Um, these actually post mortem examinations in patients who died of of COVID. So there is this dysbiosis or imbalance in what should be there. Now, that's a little bit of a tricky thing too, because no two people are going to have the the exact same microbial signatures, but we see these relative overpopulations or underpopulations, which, which has been seen in COVID patients. And yeah, so probiotics have been suggested as a potential COVID-19 treatment. What do we know so far about probiotics and their effectiveness in preventing or perhaps managing COVID? Well, here's where there's only two active clinical trials looking specifically at probiotics and COVID. 
But what we do know is that probiotics have been shown to help reduce the frequency, severity, and duration of other respiratory illnesses like rhinoviruses, the common cold, influenza as well. So there's certainly biological plausibility that probiotics could help with COVID infection. And the way that it does this, and I think, you know, it might be be useful to back up a little bit even. So how how are these gut bacteria uh, helping with immune function anywhere? And there's actually, there's two ways that it does it. The gut bacteria themselves directly stimulate immune cells, production of things like natural killer cells, you know, other macrophages, T cells, and so on. But then their metabolites do too. So this could be that whole topic of postbiotics. So the metabolites are things like short chain fatty acids, butyrate, propionate, these types of things that also enhance the production of immune cells. So that's why we have seen pretty good evidence that probiotics can help with other respiratory infections and even with some autoimmune conditions affecting the respiratory system like asthma, issues like COPD and so on. So that's why it's encouraging. You know, we, we do need the studies to be done, but in the meanwhile, I think it is a biologically plausible and thoughtful thing to do. Yeah, you mentioned a few strains a few minutes ago, and I'm just curious, do we know what specific strains would be best when trying to defeat this disease? Well, I think with this, it, it's interesting. So the, just as a, a quick sort of primer on how we classify a probiotic. So there's the highest levels of the phylum. So let's take a look at Actobacillus acidophilus. So that's one of them. So the, the highest levels of the phylum, and that's uh, Formicides. Okay, there's also Bacterioides. So we, a lot of the studies are actually this high-level phylum. The next level of specificity is the genus. So this should be Lactobacillus. So we hear that quite a bit. So there's lots of different species in the Lactobacillus genus, things like Acidophilus, Bulgaricus, Rhamnosus. So these are some of the ones, uh, to answer your question, that would be helpful. Then we also got to look at the strain. Then like with the Lactobacillus, there's the NCFM strain, which is useful. But we can talk about that when we talk about probiotic supplements in general. But those are some of the ones that are useful because there's over a thousand different species. It's been estimated in the gut, but those are some of the lactobacillus species that are helpful. There's bifidobacterium species, things like bifidobacterium infantis, bifidobacterium uh, breve, bifidobacterium bifidum. So there's a number, those are some of the main players that we see in, you know, enhanced immunity, you know, from these respiratory infections. There's so many different strains, and then you have to factor in everybody has a different gut profile. And so, you know, could there even be a one size fits all approach or would everybody need some type of specific personalized treatment? You know, ideally it would be a specific personalized treatment because it's not going to be a one size fits all that much. We know for sure, you know, there are tests out there. They're getting better, you know, stool tests to to assess people's uh, gut microbiota you know, microbiota is the population of microorganisms. That's also on our skin. It's all over our bodies, really. But as we get better testing, I think we're going to be able to go with more specificity. One of the challenges in the clinical trials is that if we were able to sort of personalize them a little bit more efficiently, I think we'd see even better outcomes. We've got good outcomes for probiotic dietary supplements. But I think if we were to say, all right, this person is low in lactobacillus bulgaricus, let's go in with that particularly. You know, I think then we'd get even better outcomes. That, that day will come. What's your timeline? What What are you predicting? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think I think there's uh, there's better and better tests that are out there right now. There's you know GI Map. There's Genova's got good tests. Uh, so there, there, there's a number that are out there. You know, some of the, the more popular ones that are out there are actually at the level of the phylum, so it's a little hard to to intervene on those. And you know, there's uh, some changes that occur throughout time. 
based on what we eat. So the fibers in our diets have a really big impact on what our gut flora are going to be. So it doesn't remain completely constant. So there's some variability with that, but I think we'll eventually get there. I'd say if I had to give a prediction, I'd say in the next few years, you know, each year we seem to get a little bit better. It will be able to personalize a little bit more effectively. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure if someone with COVID-19 would be treated with antibiotics, but I do know that antibiotics take a major toll on the gut. How does that impact how one might be treated given that COVID does impact the gut? You know, it's a virus, but sometimes there are, are still antibiotics given. And one of the, I'd say the area in probiotics that has the most consistent data is that certain probiotics are efficacious for antibiotic associated diarrhea. There is rock solid evidence for that. So when that happens, and a lot of times with COVID infections there, you know, we think about the respiratory side of it the weakness, the fatigue, but then there's also GI disturbances and it may be due to the disruption of the uh, gut microbiota. So yeah, I, I'd say if someone is given antibiotics, you should most certainly take a probiotic supplement, although that needs to be done uh, carefully. So you want to time probiotic supplementation a few hours away from taking antibiotics because most of the antibiotics uh, will also kill the probiotic bacteria. So giving a few hours apart is usually a wise idea. Ah, that's a good tip right there. Uh, One thing I wanted to talk about is Seed Health recently announced uh, FDA authorization of its new investigational drug application for a multi-strain probiotic. The regulatory acceptance allows them to initiate a phase two clinical study to investigate the role of gut microbiome in patients with IBS. Um, Normally, we think of that as a dietary supplement, but now when we start talking about INDs, how does that impact the overall outlook of probiotics? Well, you know, the, the, and it's interesting to see that. And I, I commend any group that's doing uh, clinical research on, on their dietary supplements and, and probiotics, especially. Yeah, the IND landscape is, uh, is challenging. So anytime there is a disease mitigation claim, there needs to be an IND. And we could talk about, you know, whether that is really in the spirit of dietary supplements, which actually generally can't make, even mm-hmm. if there is good disease mitigation claims, but it is, it is the way things are currently set up right now. So I think with things like that, I, I you know, I commend the effort to go, because it's hard to do an IND, as, as maybe your listeners probably know, uh, but for a lot of these large, you know, especially federally funded trials, there often is an expectation for an IND. Now, if it were something like uh, just broader GI symptoms or something without a diagnosis, a lot of times that can be done as a structure function set of claims, but I commend, yeah, every time we see something like this, I think it's a it's a good thing because it's it's going the extra mile and navigating a really challenging landscape. Uh, again, we could talk about whether that landscape is is optimal to have to do an IND, but you know, for those that are, uh, to be commended, I think it, it could change the way uh, we practice medicine and the way consumers have information with, with good clinical trials. Mm-hmm. One thing that you kind of brushed on earlier that I wanted to bring up was the role of prebiotics, postbiotics, and metabolites. What can we expect to see from those? Yeah, well, I'm a big believer in consuming prebiotics just in our in our in our diet. So prebiotics are the, are the fibers that feed the bacteria. You know, I, I think the what happens in a capsule from the time of manufacture to the time it's it's uh, consumed. You know, it's hard to predict, I think, especially when there's a lot of prebiotics in there. But I, I, I certainly think prebiotics are useful. There may be a, a use for prebiotic supplementation. There's some good data for some of them. I generally recommend them not in the probiotic capsules personally, but, but I think they're critically important. 
you know, to, to getting the microbial diversity and, and density. Postbiotics are interesting too. So those are the metabolites of the uh, probiotics. So those are things like the short chain fatty acids, uh, butyrate and so on that have, uh, you know, very important effects. It's uh, really fascinating. And, and again, I commend those that are doing the work. You know, how does it compare to when we take a probiotic and it produces butyrate versus taking butyrate directly. It reminds me a little bit of you know ketones. And you can take exogenous ketones. How does that compare to the ketones that are produced when we are fasting or on a ketogenic diet? So I think it's, it's really exciting um, and look forward to seeing more studies on that. One thing that we were talking about before we, we jumped on the NutriCast was how the gut microbiome is something that you and I, you know, talk about regularly in our professions, but it's not very mainstream. Do you predict that one day it'll be something that we're all talking about that everybody's aware of? I absolutely think so. And for a couple of reasons. I mean, you know, we're in this era of personalized medicine. We realize that genetic therapies are, are useful. I mean, there's there's a, some benefit in genetic tailored therapies for a variety of things. But we also realize that the genetic material of the microbes within us, that's what the microbiome is. So it's all the genetic material of all of the microbiota, which are the organisms themselves, dwarfs our, the number of our own genes. So I think it, you know if we truly want to personalize diets, uh, certainly supplementation um, and maybe even other lifestyle factors and, and medications that we really need to be aware of what each individual's microbiome looks like. So I think it's getting more and more mainstream. You know, many people that have GI issues will take a probiotic or, you know, one thing I recommend too is as we get into cold and flu season, increase your fermented foods, take a, a high quality clinically trial tested probiotic. I think more and more people are doing that. But as we start to look at stuff like this, like the gut, you know, lung access, the gut brain access, microbiome is going to be, I think, on, on even more people's minds. Mm-hmm. It's connected to everything. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's hard to find uh, an organ system, again, that sort of common response that's not impacted, whether it's production of immune cells or production of neurotransmitters, modification of metabolism. The microbiome is at the heart of really who we are. Absolutely. They're beneficial for patients with their antiviral activity their ability to restore gut microbiota, modulate inflammation. Uh, But what about some challenges? You know, as we talk about the possibility of probiotics helping in COVID-19 cases, what would be some challenges that we might expect to come across? Well, I think there's challenges in probiotics, you know, more generally. I think my uh, research team at University of Maryland published a paper. It was a review of Cochrane reviews. So it was a review of reviews of probiotic supplements for gastrointestinal conditions. And one of the things that, that I really emphasize is that, you know, probiotics are not all created equally. You know, we need to be aware of how they're manufactured, how they're stored. So, you know, ideally under cold conditions, especially during the summer and strain specificity. So one thing I think is interesting is that, you know, we think of E. coli, that's a, a, a species. We often think about for food poisoning and, and some strains of E. coli can indeed cause food poisoning. Another strain is actually a probiotic supplement. So I think we need to be aware of strain specificity too. So see, these are some of the general challenges in probiotic research. There's that challenge of not one size fits all. You know, I think there's the challenge too of there's there's two studies right now for, for probiotics for COVID-19. There's this challenge of it can be a little timely to, to do the IND and these types of things. But so those are some of the, the, the challenges that are there. But I think the opportunities and the rewards are uh, worth, you know, really kind of um, sifting through the challenges. Absolutely. I mean, they're readily available. They're easy to administer. 
do we know the safety? Are they generally considered pretty safe? They they generally are. There's there's very few issues now. Now that said, I you know I, at one point in time we thought that you could we could indiscriminately give antibiotics you know without any ill effects. Now I don't think probiotics are going to have anywhere near the side effects that antibiotics do. I still think you know we recommend patients to to take those that have clinical evidence behind them. But generally speaking, probiotics seem to be very safe in the in the grand scheme. You know, unlike with certain nutrients where you know you take a, a ton of vitamin A, for example, or vitamin E, or even some minerals, you can run into toxicities. There doesn't really seem to be, you know, um, we have trillions, you know, maybe even a quadrillion. What what? Wow. Uh, yeah. So uh, in our gut, so you know, there, there doesn't seem for a lot of the ones that have been around for a long time and, and have been tested, it doesn't seem like there's risk of overdose or toxicity with these. So that's another nice thing about the safety profile. That's really fascinating. One thing that you talked about, you mentioned there's a couple studies underway and maybe one of them you might be referring to is the one at Duke University. They got approval for a clinical trial uh, for COVID-19 exposed households. So some of those participants will receive commercial cultural probiotic brand formulated with LGG. So LGG is, is uh, lactobacillus rhamnosus. GG is the, is the strain. So um, um, I actually, I have not seen the design of that one. I was referring, there's one in, in Mexico and one in Spain right now. Um, I'll have to take a look at that design. But, you know, they, they can vary. And I think it, it depends on how you do it. So the studies that are, are aimed at prevention might take a little bit longer because like, let's say those that look at a cold or flu season, you kind of have to go throughout the cold and flu season. And I really, I really commend companies who are lending their products for those kinds of studies. Those that are a treatment might be shorter often. So those could be weeks as opposed to, you know, a couple months, a lot of times for the prevention studies. So I, I think it really varies on what the, what the goal is. In either case, it's really good to see uh, this kind of stuff being done. Certainly a fascinating thing that that's underway right now. I, lo- I love seeing it. And uh, I, you know, I take them personally too and recommend people. So I think the more information we get out, you know, the, the better off it's going to be for everybody. Absolutely. Dr. Chris Adamo, Director of the Center for Integrative Medicine at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. It was a pleasure having you on the NutriCast today. It was a pleasure. Look forward to uh, future such conversations. If you like what you just heard, you can subscribe to the NutriCast on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. You can also head to NutraIngredients-USA.com for even more Nutra-related content. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm Danielle Masterson. As always, I'll catch you here on the NutriCast next week.